0: Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar, to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So Robert, having covered geopolitics last time, let's go back to data. We've had a pretty positive reaction to recent US economic data, given that the preceding weeks and indeed few months reaction to not wholly dissimilar data was much more negative and, uh, and and cautious. So can you tell us what what's happened and how have markets reacted? Yeah,
1: it's been quite a volatile period. Um, and I'm not sure it's been a positive reaction to the data but it's been a positive reaction to what the data meant and it's what what did the data mean i think the big sort of call the markets made has been um we're getting close to a period where monetary policy is going to turn and we've reached the peak of rates and that was really the signal of the last week The, the the communications from central banks and also the the data that came out so i think communications and also from um from the treasury as well, in terms of how much issuance there was going to be, that's again been a big fixation in the market. Was it all down to supply of of too much supply of treasuries uh, to, uh, bonds coming onto the market, and maybe the the, the numbers were a bit lower than people are expecting, so less supply, and also we're at this this peak point of of the higher for longer is maybe not going to be the case, and certainly the markets are pricing in significant cuts. Really, that we we've reached the peak and we're going to have cuts next year. Um, probably three cuts is is currently priced in in the US as an example and that was enough really to to light the 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 sort of touch paper to see a lot of the big moves down in October in terms of bonds and equities selling off suddenly bouncing back in the first week of 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 November and and also maybe it's a bit of positioning because we've come off the back of three months where it's been pretty negative for equities and bonds positioning had become quite uh, one one directional. So it's quite negative positioning. So uh, to some extent, it's a bit of a short covering. Um, but when we drill into the data of what was actually coming through, uh, when we look at the employment data in particular, I think if we if we break that down, um, it, I suppose it was in line with expectations, but it certainly shows a slowing. Uh, so in the payrolls data, surprised by about thirty thousand. But a lot of that was actually down to um, specifically some auto workers that weren't working. So it's, it's more or less in line. But um, I think one of the fixations of the market is, is something called Psalm's Law, which was um, an observation from uh, a member of the Federal Reserve in St. Louis uh, to observe that really when when you get a unemployment starting to go up enough, in this case, really, it's 50 basis points um, increase of the three-month moving average of unemployment off the low of the last 12 months as soon as it goes up that much every time it's led to recession and really the observation is once you get unemployment start to go it goes a lot further so you get at least one or two percent uh, rise in employment and you typically lead to recession now we're right on the border of that so um, that that's why people are um sort of watching it closely but it wasn't just the payrolls data the internal data when we looked at it um, in the ISM surveys, both manufacturing and service sectors showing a slowing of economic activity. But in terms of employment components, they had sharp declines. Um, equally, the uh, Conference Board Consumer Confidence Survey showed again, similarly signs of, of slowing of employment. Now, the slowing is not gonna happen in one go as we've talked about before, because the, the labor market had been so tight um, so y- you don't see a sudden pickup in unemployment. What you're seeing is vacancy levels. The softening of the labour market is first felt with vacancy levels and fewer people um, changing jobs uh, will later get the pickup. And it happens with a lag uh, of, of um, a, r- a rise in unemployment. But I think that's what the market is sort of pointing to is. At the moment, the, the bad news is good news in the sense of you, we're ignoring the fact that bad news actually means slowing um, growth is is bad for revenues and, and profits. And just completely looking at the good news, the big enemy of markets in the last um, three months or so had been that big rise in rates. This meant you couldn't have a fall in rates and that um leads to bond activity. And I think that's what we've said about the, the years, is this reflexive dance between the twos. The better data is, the more rates go up, which then is bad news, and equally it works the other way around. The worst data is, oh, we're going to have lower rates, lower rates is better financial conditions. Um, and it's, it's a bit of an uncomfortable dance. And the first bit could be nice for equities when we've got this positive correlation of equities and bonds moving in the same direction. But ultimately, weaker growth when it does come through Will be negative for equities. So I think we we we're in a comfortable position at, at the moment. But it it can get a bit more more tricky because the dance um, the more rates fall and the markets buoyant, actually the more the Federal Reserve has to keep uh, rates higher for longer because the um, the inflation
0: data is is still surprisingly sticky. And, and to what extent, Robert, do you see this as a to some extent a technical response to what has been? what had been until this happened, a a, a multi-month sell-off. Because you you rightly make the point that, in some ways, the data wasn't dramatically different. We've had this curious, as you say, reflexive dance where uh, when times are good and the economy is moving, that makes people positive about stocks, but then it can also make them cautious about the future path of interest rates because the economy is so strong then interest rates will have to go higher and we have a higher for longer worry. On the other hand, bad news, as you say, can become good news that the bad news to the economy means that it's good news in a way for interest rates, which will come down more quickly and then that'll be okay for asset markets. But it's not evident to me that, as you say, there was anything dramatically different in the data. It was just that the markets chose to view it slightly differently. And so I wonder to what extent it, it was just markets are sold off, things look relatively cheaper than they had a few months ago. And people decided, well, okay, now's the time to buy. And, and, and as so often in markets, people then ex-post write the, write the rationale by arguably over-interpreting some relatively small data changes. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's broadly fair. I mean, the, the, the sentiment about we're seeing a change in monetary policy, that's the narrative, and that really has captured markets. So it's less about the data and more about what the data, the Treasury numbers, and the Federal Reserve speak all meant during that week. Um, and you're right, I think the biggest thing, we, we should always remember when we're talking about these things, short-term news, it's far more noise than signal. And that's why really what you put it in context A big move in which we've seen really for most of the year up in rates. This uh, big move in the last week is just reversing the last month. (laughs) Effectively, we're back in equities and bonds to where we were in September. So, uh, again, it's about when you have volatile periods, time can move at different speeds. Effectively, you're just back where you were six weeks ago. So, um, so far, it looks more like the short covering. And you see that in terms of the stocks, which stocks bounce the most, and they're quite dramatic bounces uh, were the, the most shorted stocks. So If you look at the indices of which stocks are most shorted, they suffered a lot in that period of, of rates going up, and they were the ones that bounced the most. So, so far, it looks a bit more technical and a bit more uh, driven by sentiment about monetary policy than anything uh, we should be looking uh, at more closely. But the data is important. The data is showing slowing. So that this this idea that there is going to be a slowdown in the next 12 months, I think is there, it may be softer than we think. And I think that's where the interplay about policy is. If policy makers really uh, are gonna start cutting rates at this level when inflation hasn't come all the way back down to 2%, arguably that makes that medium-term risk of a higher inflationary environment, monetary policy being behind the curve, more likely. So I think the medium-term positioning for a different regime uh, is, is all the more likely if we have these, if we see monetary policy turn so quickly before inflation has been fully defeated. And that certainly looks more likely than than it did, um,
0: say, three months. And and slightly in a way, knowing the answer before I pose the question, but nevertheless posing the question, there's nothing in this recent slew of data that is going to cause us to change the view we've held for quite a while, which is, you know, be be cautious, uh, interest rate increases, act with a lag. That lag is um, one that probably has now elapsed, and so we're beginning to see the impact. So don't get carried away, continue to be cautious and be ready for a slowdown. That That's still our view, isn't it? I think, yes,
1: that, that is our view. And I should say that the chances of this rally continuing between now and Christmas, which isn't that far away, is there, and that's sort of the pain trade for the markets to go up. That doesn't change our medium-term case. And I think, so if you're a trader, you can, you can bear a bit of pain in the short term. You've got to bear a bit of pain or um, see markets um, markets have the potential to rally. but But the fundamentals do still point to a slowdown in growth. And also, more importantly, Um, If that is the case and rates do get cut um, or or we don't see the the Federal Reserve um, fight inflation as thoroughly as they might have done, I think the positioning we've got for the medium term, which is where our clients will will, will look to protect and make more money, will be thinking about value against growth, remaining underweight bonds, thinking how you diversify portfolios with inflation hedges, looking at markets outside the US, all those medium term positioning, uh, is even more likely if if that is the case so i think it, definitely the short term positioning still still remain cautious when the risks risks are there but you should have your portfolio positioned for a different
0: regime that's even more likely you touched on interest rates robert and clearly in the case of the what we just talked about is very much the short run Policymaker-controlled interest rates that we've been talking about, which people are fixating on, but obviously long-term interest rates that are outside the control of the central banks. Really, really matters. So, looking at bonds, they have they've moved around a lot, and they've had a very tough time. Um, what What do you think lies ahead? So, we, we've seen a big sell-off in bonds over that tough summer period followed by a little bit of a uh, recovery, but I emphasis on little and not evidently strongly in in, in in that direction. But rates have, you know, in the round have gone up, long term interest rates have gone up quite a lot. Is this a buying opportunity? Where, where are you on what we should be doing and thinking about with with longer dated bonds?
1: Well, I think when we were talking about the volatility of rates, um, so most of the volatility has been in the long-term uh, part of the curve. And I think the interesting aspect has been, so what, what, are, what are the reasons for and against bonds? Well, one reason against at the moment is bonds have been displaying more volatility, so more price risk um, than equities have laid, uh, which, is a bit, which is unusual in and itself. So if your defensive asset is showing you more risk and more, more downside potential, Maybe that's um, a, a reason still to avoid bonds. I think the most positive reason for saying why do you like bonds in the short term is, um, and, and maybe this is quite consensus, but really the, the response in recessions is interest rates fall. And even if we're in a higher period for interest rates, there's scope for long-term rates um, to fall in the recessionary environment. And given the duration of those instruments, you can protect your portfolio. So the protection that wasn't there when interest rates were zero is there now. So bonds can have a p- part to play uh, protecting against recession. Uh, famous uh, market participant, Stanley Drucker-Miller, he was focusing very much of, of late talking about the two year. Now, there, you, arguably, you've got more potential um, to, be, to be right in that that is more controlled by the Federal Reserve policy in the next two years. So if there is this about turn, then rates there can drop considerably. He has to lever up his position a long way to get you the same protection. And he's able to do that. But that is certainly um, one area investors are looking at. And I think the argument to say bonds beating equities, if you do look, and we have a a chart that we use from uh, ASR research, shows the connection between the the business cycle, in this case, unemployment inverted, um, and equities against bonds, they're very closely correlated. So if you think you're in for a period where unemployment's going to go up, that Psalms law plays out, then bonds are likely to beat equities in that period. More so probably from equities falling um, as much as bonds going up, but but that's the likely environment we've got in the next 12 months. So I suppose the the uh, recession protection and potential return in the next 12 months uh, so far tick tick. Negative side um, you're seeing more volatility, so it's a bit more tricky. I think the biggest risk though, and why for long term investor you've got to be really cautious, is that risk about inflation because. If medium-term inflation uh, is not being defeated and monetary policy turns too quickly, you might be fine in the short term, but it is building up the potential for long-term negative returns for bonds, and that's where you get really hit. The last two years have been very unusual because you've been hit from interest rates going up, and that's not really happened in a hundred years. Most of the time, you lose in bonds is you lose by inflation just being higher than your your yield for a sustained period of time, and that remains. Um, the the real medium-term threat for bonds. So I think I would be cautious in taking too big a long-term position. And that's why you can think, there are there are um, ways to protect yourself. Because I, I suppose, talking about the bonds, we've seen that increase in real rates, but it's when the term premium's gone from negative to zero, it can go a lot higher. So real rates could go higher, inflation could go higher, they could both hurt your bonds. So one way, one place you can hide is maybe having lower duration, so more short duration bonds, but also inflation-linked bonds because there you protect yourself against one of those two enemies. At least you've, you're locking in and protecting against inflation. So real rates can still hurt you, but you can protect against inflation. And even short-term bonds have been giving over two and a half percent real yield. So I think maybe thinking a bit differently. Um, about your your bond allocation is is one avenue. And I think the other avenue is just looking in other parts of the world because not every part of the world is in the same state um, and the same risk to inflation. There are parts of the emerging world where a lot of inflation risk is already priced in. So emerging market bonds Um, could be a bit more of a safe haven. And at one place, we again, geopolitical risk is making it more tricky. But it's interesting that even in the last two years or so, Chinese bonds have been a much better safe haven than US bonds over that period of time. So um, I think for for bond investors, even if you want that protection, I think you have to think a bit more laterally to protect against that that risk
0: of inflation. And I suppose that is a theme that we have talked about quite a lot now, which is that as the regime has changed and we've gone from a world of pretty consistently falling long-run interest rates to one where that's no longer true because they just fell to a point beneath which they couldn't fall any further. We've now got to a point where you can't necessarily see bonds as a as a long-term whole, as a secular asset for a portfolio. They are their assets that uh, you have to just think much more carefully about how you use them and when you use them. To your point, Robert, uh, what you buy, what Uh, what duration and also what geography it's a you know one could bond investing was never easy I don't want to give that impression but it definitely become much much trickier
1: yeah and and thinking about that um, that tailwind you had in the last 30 years especially from 1980 to, to 2015 or so you could get six percent real return on long duration bonds, and close your eyes. So there, there was, there was it, it, it was a lot easier when you start with real rates much higher. So we're it's a much better now than we were two years ago, but there's still um, it is still a two sided risk, and that risk of inflation still remains quite large.
0: So looking beyond straightforward sovereign at bonds to other other parts of the debt markets, you touched on uh, non US issuers. Uh, but there's obviously also uh, credit um, and then there's private lending, private credit. What, what are the areas that you see of opportunity, Robert, the ones that we're particularly looking at at the moment and which we anticipate looking at in coming months? I think private credit has been very popular uh, and there is a good structural reason for that. Because
1: of the problems of the banking sector after the GFC, banks have pulled back from from lending and the natural home, actually, of um, lenders, really, is if you've got private funding, private long-term funding, that's a much better um, sort of asset liability match. So there's, there are arguments for the private credit market. Rates are a lot better than they were. So if you have good underwriting now, most of it, unfortunately, is from the um, the, the risk-free rate, the the government bond rate going up. Credit spreads are not particularly wide. And I think that's That's the problem you face at the moment is as a whole to maturity, long-term asset, if you can lock in these yields, 10 to 15%, uh, with good underwriting, that does look appealing compared to equities. And and you won't have the mark-to-market volatility as much. So some investors really um, find that appealing. I think when we really want to get excited about credit, I think there will be more pain to come. So credit spreads in this environment are likely to widen. And when spreads widen as well, um, that's when it can become really attractive um, entry point. So I think where we've been paying a lot of uh, research into is p- finding active managers who can take advantage of that, be it either stressed credit uh, in performing credit or in distressed debt where you could, can potentially take an equity ownership. Um, and those two areas we've, we've been researching and adding to client portfolios so that we've got um, cash in the ground ready to deploy on the Um, drawdown structures, and also we're looking to deploy in the next six months or so um, in more liquid areas. Um, So I think credit is is coming into favour. But when we look at the pricing in the last few weeks, um, even more than equities uh, in the last week, uh, credit spreads bouncing back, you really aren't pricing in a lot of the pain that could come from a real real repricing of uh, rates going up so there will come there's always a talk of a, a refinancing wave to come because there's always debt and one of the good news and maybe why the economy has been a bit stronger is there's been a lot more fixed term debt in in the mortgage market and other markets where maturities have been extended but there is this wall of debt that's coming and we are at fundamentally different rates, which aren't going to revert anytime soon all the way back. So when uh, as and when those refinancing moments happen, first, maybe in real estate, then in corporates, we're going to see these um, tricky environments coming. So even if the environment is a more softer, more protracted landing for the economy as a whole, it could be a really fertile environment for active uh, managers in the credit space to take advantage of, of lending to people uh, when when. um when they're in a bit more distress
0: and, and spreads have widened a bit further? Yes, one of the things that we are seeing or reading being written about and hearing being talked about is the growing share of debt interest in US government expenditures. So, as the US runs these pretty epic budget deficits, which they're financing by borrowing, and because interest rates have gone up, you see the debt interest. Service share of government expenditure, and therefore also GDP, going up quite dramatically, which is obviously part of the background to the debates in Congress about what gets funded and what gets cut and how much gets spent overall. And that's just at a national level, the debt challenge that's obviously being faced by those individuals and corporates who are uh, spending more than they make. But the reason I, I, I rehearse that is, is in a way to have that as our starting point and then looking at markets outside the US, because if we do turn to emerging markets, we see that not all, not all, and we can perhaps find time to talk about what's going on in China because that is a huge emerging market and that's not uh, without its uh, problems. But there are some uh, key emerging markets that seem to be in a much better place when it comes to sovereign sustainability and the way they've managed their fiscal circumstances and and therefore avoiding debt crisis because what the US can get away with financing and most others can't always get away with financing. So I wonder if you could perhaps, Robert, talk a little bit about... W- what is behind this resilience? Why have uh, some, not all, uh, emerging markets been able to weather this storm, which is of rising interest rates? Where, where historically and typically, the the first the first shoes to fall uh, when the U.S. interest rates went up would be in emerging markets. See, you know, EM debt crises, see tequila crises, and all those uh, all those before.
1: Yeah. I think it's it, in finance, a lot of it is responding to what happened in the last crisis. So unfortunately, where the pain has been, often the lessons learned and then you're in a safer position. And really we've seen that play out um, over the last 30 years in terms of 1998, late nineties, emerging market debt crisis, uh, emerging, the last big emerging market crisis really. Um, and after that point, Maybe it laid the the problems for the GFC and beyond. Uh, certainly, in the Asian countries, there was a lot of a lot more excess savings that that happened, and we had this big saving surplus, and that was one of the reasons interest rates got crushed in the US. So, partly the, the the emerging markets are benefiting from those better balance sheets and and more sustainable policy in general, not just monetary but fiscal policy and general government policy. More prudent policy making is really paying benefits from where we start today. Um, compared to the US, uh, arguably the problems we made worse because those excess savings were, were were shunted in one direction. And maybe that's the problem we're facing now is there will be when we touch on China and the working age population, that excess savings that really was there in the first part of, of uh, this century is not there in, in this greater, greater supply. So we are that's one of the reasons we're likely to see higher real rates. Now, I think so I think there are po- emerging markets, certainly emerging market debt is now a safe haven in many ways. And there are many reasons why you uh, particular countries, and you have to go country by country, can do well. I think the risk of geopolitical risk in the extremists still is there. So be very cautious in just saying, I used to have all my money in US bonds, now I'm moving it to XYZ country over here. I think when you you, you take geopolitical risk, you've got... to. Um, manage it by diversification and think of some of those extreme outcomes. I think also the other point I would say is U.S. rates going up. Yes, you may be a bit better in terms of default risk in some of those countries, and they may be able to cut rates a bit. But the U.S. interest rate is going to have a contagion in the rest of the world. We can't pretend it's not. So I think if we did have a really big U.S. debt shock, uh, it's not going to be as safe as maybe some people are thinking on the bullish case in emerging markets now. And I think what I wanted to mention as well is how do, how do you resolve these problems of too high interest rate costs? I think there are a handful of ways, one of which uh, we tried arguably 10 years ago is austerity. So we've got this problem. How do we pay it down? Well, uh, we spend less and we, uh, we tax people more and we have austerity. That's politically unpopular. It's, it's been tried. And I think the direction of the, the median voter is pointing to that's not going to work. I think where could you have the problems is one is interest rates going up. And we've seen that a bit more recently. So you can have the bond market, bond vigilantes um, causing such problems that then you have monetary um, or, or government action in response. Um, but that's not the only avenue, because there are ways out of it. So one is interest rates going up and you lose, lose that way. But the other two big ways is one is inflation. and I think that's why we keep coming back to that is actually, um, you, while you print your own currency, the US government is never going to default on its debt. Uh, the, where, where you can get hurt is by having too much inflation. And the other way is by devaluation of the currency. And I think we have to think about that when we're thinking about emerging market debt as well. Um, The better news is there's a lot more emerging market debt in local currencies. So that helps them uh, resolve that fundamental problem of the currency risk. But so so when we're thinking about bonds, I think it's it's worth saying where you could be hurt as much uh, than default is by the US dollar weakening. Well, in that environment, if you have a dollar bond in another country, you, you've got equally as much problems. So I think when you're buying, say, Brazilian bonds, if you're buying dollar bonds versus local currency bonds, that um, question becomes a real um, consideration because the the event, the event, bad event for US, not only will it ripple around interest rates around the rest of the world, but it will be a currency issue as much as um, anything else. And that's why I keep turning back, and, and some other emerging markets have that, thinking about index linkers, thinking about currency risk, i think as equally as important as thinking about the sort of credit risk default risk um, so that th- those issues are intertwined and and when you're putting together that portfolio you really do have to think of all of them
0: together and there are any particular markets that you 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 think look look good robert or or is your is your prevailing view in a way the sort of note of caution, which is, yes, you know, some of these uh, emerging market economies having learned very hard and bitter lessons during the late 90s uh, crisis have sorted themselves out, have got built into their institutions and the institutional psyche, responsible behaviours and caution about overborrowing, and yet, and yet, they're still not isolated from the US and the experience of US interest rates and the US dollars. So, you know, whilst, yes, there may be some doing well, your overall note of caution trumps that. Or do you think there are pockets out there where, no, actually, these folk look really resilient to even some of the more malign possible future outcomes?
1: I think that it's, it's a mixture of those two. So there are some Asian currencies where actually, the credit looks good, absent a big war uh, between the US and China, which isn't out of the question. And there are countries where the yields are just high enough, and there's enough inflation protection. I think, at the right moment, Brazilian uh, bonds can be really, um, really appealing. So I think there are these pockets, but I don't think it's a case where you can just suddenly say, replace all your old exposure you used to have in the US uh, with XYZ emerging market bonds. I think it's a piece of the answer, but it's not the whole answer. Um, because if, if you take the US, those problems I highlighted before, actually inflation bonds in the US solve for, at least for the inflation problem. And um, the, the chance of the US defaulting in the short term, I don't think is as large as maybe some, some participants think. So I don't think you get rid of your safe haven protection from what remains the reserve currency of the world, the, the world's largest and, and uh, army and uh, uh, source of innovation. So there are lots of reasons why you do want some safe havens there. But I think more importantly for the investor in this environment is thinking fixed income is probably not the right answer uh, in this type of environment. You do want real assets, you want equities, productive assets, um, you want other ways to protect you than just hiding in currency and and being a rentier in this in this world. I think um, that that's why I think that's a lower piece of the answer. So if you had a big piece of fixed income in the past, having a bunch of these solutions, but also looking at other asset classes is as important an answer than than just um, looking for emerging market bonds.
0: Robert, thank you. Time is up. If I was to draw something out, it would be uh, what you said right at the outset, Robert, which is what we've been seeing in the last few days, the slightly positive turn of sentiment in markets. It's probably more noise than signal, and actually, when we look through the noise to what we think is going on, our view remains pretty consistent. Which comes down, I think, to being cautious, being wary of what might lie ahead. Particularly given the starting point of relatively high valuations, there will be opportunity in the future. There's no need to hurry. Whether hurry, it used to be. Uh, chasing for yield, yields now being given to us, but we end up chasing other things. And actually, our our message and our feeling is time to be cautious. There will be opportunities in the future. Uh, thank you very much for joining. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners LLP is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up. So you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied Reproduce, further distributed to any other person, or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.